in the spirit of the fact that I could die to met. Damn it. I was going to record something profound for this intro because I might die tomorrow, but screwed that one up. Oh, well. Hello there. Welcome to another episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast. I say that every time, and then I have to check myself and say, hey, you might be here for the first time. It's still another episode, so I guess you're welcome to it. And I want to acknowledge those of you that are listening to the first time, because there seems to be more and more of you, for which I am glad and grateful. Welcome. And also glad and grateful for those of you that have been listening all along. Thank you for being with us on this journey. My name is Ned Buskirk, your host for this Creatively Conscious Mortality podcast. And what is it that I want to declare here as an introduction to this special guest? I think it's that death and dying, what it's offered me other than endless grief and so many (laughs) tears, uh, decades of them, (laughs) is also new beginnings and a leaning into uh, a leaning into what it means to be in the wake of what's been lost. And that does not mean that I am ready to move forward often, really at all, sometimes, that I'm adventurous enough to say, yes, okay, what is the thing that waits for me out of the devastation of what I've just survived? I'm not necessarily that person all the time, maybe once in a while. Right now, I can see that some part of me keeps saying yes, onward, paying attention for what that next thing is, taking the risk to move forward, having been at the edge so many times, and even now speaking from a place of of very recent and palpable loss. And I, I won't say more about that right now, at least I'm still feeling my way through it. But what I want to say from that feeling, from that place, from that heartbreak, but also the looking forward and paying attention maybe more, just to connect that loss a little bit more to what I'm trying to say, the paying attention right now is heightened. I feel that was very real after my mom died. You just attend to the moment, to reality so intensely, and it hurts, and it's wild, the things you notice and that unfolds out of the universe when you are cracked open by grief. And... I'm feeling a little bit of that right now, enough to say thank you for what death and dying brings to me eventually. And I think one thing it's taught me is the willingness to be open and and learn, to have made the kind of space I've made in my life with You're Going to Die to meet people that I'm positive I wouldn't have met if my mom hadn't died and her death wouldn't have launched me into what I do with You're Going to Die. I truly believe that. And so is it's the same with this guest to think that I would ever get to have a chance to talk with someone as wonderful as Amanda Yates Garcia and their witchiness in the world and what it teaches me and what their book gave me. I just 
am feeling that this this moment of acknowledging that the the line between now with Amanda and her words and this conversation it goes all the way back to that bedside with my mom dying me holding her hand and really in a way i think i wonder Am I just pulling everyone around that I wish was there <laughs> to help me and tell me to pay attention for the right things and, and to listen in a certain way and have a certain kind of intention and consider what's possible? I don't know. I wonder. I imagine Amanda Yates Garcia now would have had a lot to say or offer me when my mom was dying and when she died and after she died. Amanda Yates Garcia is a writer, witch, and the Oracle of Los Angeles. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, the LA Times, the SF Chronicle, the London Times, CNN, Bravo, as well as a viral appearance on Fox. She has led rituals, classes, and workshops on magic and witchcraft at UCLA, UC Irvine, the Hammer Museum, LACMA, and the Getty. Amanda hosts monthly moon rituals online, and the popular Between the Worlds podcast, which looks at the Western mystery traditions through a mythopoetic lens. Her book, Initiated, Memoir of a Witch, received a starred review from Kirkus and Publishers Weekly and has been translated into six languages. I hope whatever loss you incurred in your life, dear listener, that brings you here, I hope you get what you need in the wake of that from this conversation in this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Amanda Yates Garcia. Death is really the biggest deal. Like it's the biggest thing. It's the biggest, (laughs) most spiritual thing that we ever encounter and Mm. the greatest mystery and I think that's when we kind of know that our healing journey has, when we've come back to the village, I guess, mm-hmm. from our time in the underworld, yeah. is when we're able to share our experiences with people who are wandering, kind of lost or in the deserts themselves. And... um mm-hmm. That's what makes the experience whole is that we are able to then share it with each other and offer something back. And not not yeah. everyone makes it not everyone makes it out of those underworlds. You know, they're very dangerous places. Grief can be very dangerous and all sorts of um, challenges that we experience in our daily life, whether it's you know struggles with addiction or um, you know money, resource, mental health, all of those things. Um, you know, lost uh, loss of relationships, all these things that push us into places that we don't know if we can bear. Mm-hmm. And that's one aspect of what I consider to be the underworld. But the underworld is a very complicated and labyrinthine place. And there's a lot of beauty down there too. But um, mm. yeah, it's, it's really when, you, when you, you know that you've come out when you're able to really show up and share it with other people. Mm-hmm. Do, were you, did you talk about it clearly now 
and I feel like in your book describing it still, it's you describing it as this is what happened. But during that time, was it that clear? Was it quite clear? I mean, first of all, you knew that declaring you being the Oracle of Los Angeles was necessary. And so it feels like a moment of this is, this is what is now, you know, how many years ago was that? Uh, maybe t- 10. Mm-hmm. It was like around 2010, I think mm-hmm. that that was happening. Yeah. So 13. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're, cause the yeah. amount of people that kept coming into that space and that you needed to also learn right then the boundaries of, okay, I've definitely <laughs> reached my limit, uh, in one evening, the first time. Did you know though, then like, this is what is like, I need to keep, was it clear? I need to keep holding this particular kind of space and how, you know, after that, how did you even know? Well, do I keep going to museums or, or do I keep holding this as kind of the exhibit style, which by the way, is worth acknowledging in a way that you do in your book, this line between the art and the medicine and the healing and the creativity, uh, it's all kind of a blur there, you know, and that it's not, it's, it's all those things that happens so that if someone had said, where's the first time you ever did this, they could have guessed that it was a museum, but it's perfect that it was there because of your understanding of all those things and how they kind of cross over one another and blur together in, in the ways they're needed or how they are in the world. Yeah. Well, for instance, I just did a, another performance Mm. like a week or two ago that was in a gallery setting that was, I, I I don't make a distinction between the work that I'm doing as a healer and the work that I'm doing as an artist. And I find that satisfying in the sense that I feel like a heretic in the art world, which Mm -hmm. I enjoy because there are many things about the art world that I find really problematic, which are mostly related to feeling like artists are bringing enchantment and beauty and inspiration and hope and are the ones who are really wrestling with it, what it means to be alive or what it means to die or why we're here or, you know, creating something beautiful that can reach us even when we are in the depths of grief or the depths of despair. And it's really oftentimes um, the arts, music, poetry, um, or the possibilities that the arts present that are the things that are able to reach us when nothing else can. And I think that Mm -hmm. is so valuable and beautiful and essential. And I always have thought that the arts um, have carried a torch, have kept a torch burning of the enchanted or the magical or the spiritual in our culture, you know, after the enlightenment, when the, the fires of spirit were essentially extinguished in the West. And so I find it really infuriating that, artists are made to kind of dance tap dance for like rich people and prove to mm-hmm. them that they have something worth buying or, you know, like there's a lot of status orientation and hierarchy in the art world, which I think is a huge insult to the, the truth and beauty and power of what artists are doing. So mm-hmm. I like to be a heretic <laughs> Even though, yeah. you know, I am Good. also an insider because I have, um, well, you said you know, that. I have you a, a MFA. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. You, so, you know, I you mean, talk about riding the line of what it means to do what you do and be in a capitalist context, somehow still needing to survive and, and thrive, hopefully, and play by the games a little bit, but also, yeah, be heretical, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's also something that's very challenging for healers or people who work in, you know, quote unquote wellness or even as like spiritual workers of any kind, or even with grief, or I'm sure even to a certain degree, like psychologists and things too, Mm -hmm. when you're working in a caring profession, it becomes very complicated when you ask for support or ask for payment or require that, or sometimes, you know, people don't really realize how expensive it is to do and how, Mm -hmm. um, costly it is psychologically, yeah. emotionally, and like how, how much training you need. And the sense also is that, you know, a lot of people want to get into healing work, but you, when you're ready to hold space for people, then people trust you and then they come to you. And you can say that you're ready all that you want, but the proof is whether or not people <laughs> yeah. are showing up and like feeling supported by you. Yeah, that's right. So you can go get like the hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of, you know, <laughs> degrees and things, yeah. but <laughs> but people are either going to show up for, for you and feel safe around you or feel like you help them or not. And getting to that place where you can do that. So for instance, for me, the, my entire book is a description of how I got to the place where I could do that. Yeah, and it was it costly, like. you know, yes, like right. going oh, into yeah. those places where you don't know that you're going to be able to find your way out again. Mm-hmm. And you think maybe I'll be lost forever down here. And like my whole life will waste away. Mm-hmm. And maybe I can't even live another day. Yeah. And like, that is not, that is a lot to find your way back from. And a lot of people, most people that I know who are healers have gone to that place. Yeah. I, I don't know any, per, I don't know any healers personally who have not gone right, to that place. Right. Yeah. It's so wild to know that definitively that could be said probably. And I could totally agree with that, that people that are those kind of deep feelers and have the gifts of understanding and holding containers for others, healing that there's darkness they had to come back from or integrate, you know, into that way of showing up in the world. And, and also the like understanding of like, would would actually not be no surprise to not come back from those places. You know, how significant, well, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I often speak to this with my clients, but often it's the thing that challenges, challenges you the most that is in fact your calling, you know, the thing that you mm-hmm. feel the most persecuted by is often the very thing that you're being oh. called upon to do. So in your case, you know, when you're feeling all this intense grief and of course, like it's the grief who is your initiator, yes. like who is your Caridwin figure or the figure who's like, and I am telling you the purpose of your life mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. And it's going to be still pretty, pretty uncomfortable at times or some significant stretch, you know, cause I, I'm not too, the reason why I left a sales job um, is because I didn't want 
partly that ease, I guess, even though it was like so uncomfortable, it wasn't easy at all. But to know that there's times, say, especially going into San Quentin where it's like, maybe all I'm doing out here is stretching and getting taught. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure often when I leave that I'm bringing in even a fraction of what I feel like I'm receiving by being in these contexts. And today felt the same way with these cancer patients, you know, but I think you're right. Part of that is I know that I'm where I'm supposed to be if that's what's happening, but boy, it requires so much to keep doing it. Cause I, I just wonder to bring it back to that moment for you, that first time, you know, how did you know you could keep doing that? Did you leave it thinking, okay, like this is it, I'm clear and I know how to do this and I need to keep doing it now? Or is it that, that moment again of like you got stretched and clearly people needed you. And so you're doing it again, isn't as much as I know exactly what to do. It's almost that, you know, it's needed more than, you know, exactly what to do. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. So many things to respond to. I know. First my of all, I, I want to... 18 I, parters. <laughs> I want to respond first to what you were saying about whether or not you are giving more than you're getting from your experiences in San Quentin and your experiences with the cancer patients. And I believe that it's it's just as important to give as it is to receive right mm-hmm. and and we can't give unless there is someone to receive it and part of what makes meaning out of our experiences is being able to give them as i just said like being able to give back to my community is what healed me yeah, you know, totally. is, yeah, is right. how I became healed. That so makes sense. by being, by e- even by being a recipient of the gifts that the cancer patients or the people who are imprisoned off the wisdom that they might offer or the, the heart or the um, humanity or the pathos or whatever it is that they are, that they are giving if you weren't there to hear it, if you weren't that tree in the forest or whatever, then you, then that would not, that sound would not emerge. Like there yeah. needs to be a recipient. And, and that. as you yeah. were saying, the, 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 it's not an easy task. <laughs> Sometimes receiving that is not an easy task yeah. and it's painful to show up again and again and again. Mm-hmm. So bravo to you. <laughs> well, back at you. Cause I'm just like, you knew then from yeah. the first time like maybe more clear. Well, I want, I want to just give you room to talk about that. I think I knew that this work was my calling. Once I returned to it when I was like, I did a birthday ritual. I think I mentioned that in the book and I started to practice magic again after a long hiatus. And I I knew that it was extremely important. Like I just had a sense that it was very important. And then that night that I did that first Oracle of Los Angeles thing in that, in that little cardboard city hall. um, (laughs) Yes. The way that people responded to that work, I just realized that there was nowhere else that I was going to that I was going to get that, yeah. you know, like that, yeah. that I, I wanted as an artist and as a person to 
connect with people on that level, maybe because I'm, you know, a Scorp- I've got like five planets in Scorpio, but Scorpio is all about that intensity and mm-hmm. emotional connection, you know? Yeah. And I knew also because I could feel that people really needed what I was doing. And also because like, so there were a lot of people who really were very moved by what I was doing and, and I could feel a connection and I could feel that there was something important happening. And so of course I wanted to continue that. And of course when, you know, I was working in like a bunch of shitty jobs, like at that time too, that I didn't care about and that I felt were, um, you know, frustrating. So of course I would rather (laughs) connect with people on a deep level than like go to this like office building and like (laughs) with no windows and like sit in front of a computer all day. Reading that moment in the book when you're talking about, and I get the need for these places, like the school, especially, right? Similarly, there's a, of course I'm looking for ways that I connected to your story, but that part of the book where you talk about being at the school, I think you worked at an office or something. I, it doesn't matter. But I've worked at schools. I've no, worked at offices. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the feeling of that, the way you could articulate it in the book and like you just acknowledge now, it's like to find the thing and say, there's no going back in contrast, right? To what I've had to do to get here job wise, even to, to have felt that moment for you where you could see like you're describing, this is how I can keep showing up. Like this is, there's, there's no other way to go, but forward like this. Yeah. And, and two, I could also tell that it was a way forward because the right people hated it. Like the people that, (laughs) (laughs) the right people, the people that I, like the people who were really snooty about like what art could be or, you know, like a lot of like misogyny Mm -hmm. in the art world or in the healing world, like turned Mm -hmm. their nose up. And I was like, yes, if they hate this, then I am on the right track. Yeah. (laughs) The right people. People saying no to something is part of how you know it's working. Yeah. And also if, if people are just like, if everyone just responds to your work, like, okay then you're probably not, <laughs> you're probably not doing the thing that yeah, you're supposed to do. Something. Either people are going to be really passionate about it, or they're going to be like, this is horrible. This is the worst thing you've ever seen. This should not exist. And and if it's the right people who are saying that, then like, keep going. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Would that first time have that immediately where you could really see that kind of divide? Well, yeah, because people, some people would come into that city hall booth and immediately connect with what I was doing and, and, and be really immersed in the magic of it. And then some people would sit down and be like, I don't believe in this stuff. And, Mm -hmm. and even that I was like, well, we're in an art gallery. Do you not believe in art? Like, what are you talking yeah. about? And the fact that they couldn't see the difference, even though they said they didn't believe in it, I thought was just really fascinating. And I thought mm-hmm. it also spoke to like this real need in our culture for connection with the mystical or the spiritual mm-hmm. or the beyond, for lack of a better term. So, yeah. and then, yeah, I think also just, you know, I work with what in witchcraft we often call the goddess and really it's 
there's many ways to speak of this energy or this force, but um, essentially the goddess was like, this is what you're doing. You know, she just pushed mm-hmm. me there. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Can you describe, it's almost like I don't want to give that moment away like a spoiler for people reading the book, but it also feels special to hear you maybe talk about details around what that moment was. Like, how did you know it in advance? How did you plan and create it? I guess I I maybe feel like reading the book, I want to know more about how you knew what to do at that, you know, at that um, show. Um, But I'm also wondering, like, in the moment, the way you describe the particular moment where the girl's talking about if she's going to have a a baby again, how it feels like you discovered right then a little more of what you're supposed to do. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. Here's the thing also about, about witchcraft and about a lot of other like magical or healing traditions, shamanic traditions. Um, the spirits teach you what you need to know. Your intuition teaches you what you need to know. I mean, you can read a lot of books and you can go get initiations. And, you know, similarly, I'm sure like in therapeutic settings, like you can, you can read a lot of, you know, Freud or Jung or Skinner or whoever, but like until you're like in a room with someone talking to them, you don't know what to do or how to do it. Mm -hmm. And, um, I didn't, I didn't really know what to do then. I just, it, I just had the intention of using whatever I had available within me to try and help that person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I often feel that, that, you know, our magic or intuition or our healing capacity, which are all part of the same thing are, it's like a well, a well of inspiration, a well of um, healing, a well of love, a well of Mm -hmm. of memory, ancestral memory even, that is maybe in psychology, they might call it the collective unconscious that we each have. We each have a connection to that. Like when we dream, we all experience it. But then you can like reach down in this well that is bottomless and pull things out that are helpful to people simply by wanting to do that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes you're more effective at it than others. And sometimes you can't find anything, you know, Mm. maybe sometimes there isn't, you're not the one who's able to give that to them. But, you know, if you have, if you can, that feels important. Yeah. If you can, then you do. And I think it's also really Mm -hmm. important to recognize that, Well, something I say to my clients all the time who are like questioning whether or not they can or should do whatever thing, X, Y, Z. And if you're helping people and you're trying to help people, I always imagine it like someone comes along, they're like coming out of the desert and they're starving, right? They haven't eaten in days and you're the first person they encounter. And they're like, I'm so hungry. Do you have anything? You're not going to be like, 
Well, not really, because I only have this like peanut butter and jelly sandwich that's like in my purse. It's not good yeah. enough. You're going to be like, take this sandwich. This is all I've got, but here you go. Like, this is what I have to offer. Mm. And this is the best that I can do, but I'm going to mm-hmm. give that. And like, if you think of, of it that way, instead of thinking like, is what, is my peanut butter and jelly sandwich good enough? Be like, this is all I have. Yeah. So this is what I'm giving. And you will give enough. Like you will give the right thing mm-hmm. because you're not the one who's in control. Like in our culture in Western culture and colonial culture, we have an illusion of control. And we think that we are the ones doing it. And we think that we are the ones who are organizing everything. And, um, you know, that we have been given authority by certain, you know, boards or certifications or whatever. And I'm not saying that those things aren't necessary in certain circumstances, but we are not in control. And if we listen, we can hear a voice of something that is larger than us and is speaking through us and is flowing through all things all the time. So if you listen to it and you practice listening to it and it's always speaking, so it's not like you need anything in particular, you know, it's everywhere and it's always speaking. So you can listen to it anytime you want to. Hi, you. I'm talking to you. Yeah. I'm actually talking to two yous. One of the yous has been listening to this podcast for a while, like many episodes. Thank you, by the way. But you've been listening to the podcast for a while, and you've never rated and reviewed the show. The other you maybe just started listening to the podcast with this episode, but you've made it this far. It must have mattered enough to keep listening. Now, this is for the both of you. If, in the fragile, fleeting time you have here, the limited time you're alive, you decided to spend part of that time with your Going to Die, the podcast. So I have to assume this show has been worth something to you. And so what I'm asking is that if you haven't already, you take the time, go into your Apple Podcasts, go into your Spotify, go into those apps, whatever podcast app you're listening to, and take 20 or 30 seconds more of your precious, fragile, fleeting life and let us know why listening to the podcast was worth your while. And by the way, in Apple Podcasts, you can choose how many stars between one and five stars. You can do that on Spotify too. In Apple Podcasts, you've been able to leave words of review, which we love. Share why the show has mattered to you in that way. We will read them. And by the way, Spotify offers that option too. It's new. Go into your Spotify podcast app, open up the episode you're listening to currently, and there's a Q&A option where you can add questions and comments to every episode. But the point is, if we mattered enough to spend part of your life with us, we'd love to know it. I was very sensitive as a child and as a young person and was open to receiving 
you know, information, voices, um, messages from the beyond, let's say, visitations. Um, and a lot of people will ask, you know, is that schizophrenia or is that like mental illness? And I think that if you are able to come back from that, then at will, right? If you're able to go, to like go into that space and come back at will, so exactly as you said, like set boundaries, then it it become then you become a healer. But the thing is, you might not come back, and you might get lost in there, and you might get lost at any time. I still could get lost in there. It's very dangerous. Yeah. I mean, and, have you felt like that has happened sometimes where it's like you go there and it's a little harder than than usual to come back? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. like just, just last year I had like a total mental health crisis where I thought I wasn't going to come back. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and like, you know, if you're, if you're doing this work often, like you're an edge walker. Right. You're you're walking yes. these liminal spaces. You're you're a hedge dweller. So, you know, you you don't always know that you're gonna come back. And often like it gets kind of more and more complicated because you get more and more experienced, you go in more and more deeply, but also you develop greater boundaries. You know, when I was younger, I didn't have any boundaries. So, well, you, you do, you know, I, I want to acknowledge that it takes the, again, a certain kind of person to know that there is a way to hold boundaries. I'm, I mean, this is wild timing for me. Cause I feel like in a way I'm relating to what you're sharing. There is a way that I'm doing more than ever of this work at the edge. And that's what I have always called it, or at least called it in the last few years the cancer patients, the grief, the prison community, these are the dying, you know, these are, they exist on edges and learning how to go there with them and be there with them and getting better at it and coming back lately and feeling like I've got like an identity crisis. I mean, that's the way, the easiest way to describe it lately for me. And so I'm, I'm both saying, I really feel like I understand what you're talking about, at least from my work. And I want to acknowledge that, it's not just everybody that knows how to come back and I don't even know, what do you call it? Reground or. Well, yeah, certainly everybody doesn't know. And I certainly <laughs> did not know. And I, it was by my luck and the skin of my teeth that I was able to find my way back and a lot of, and, and also a healthy dose of privilege because a lot of people who mm-hmm. yeah. have the, you know, who are also sensitive edge dwellers, but happen to be black or happen to be impoverished or happen to exist within a marginalized community or like, for instance, a lot of trans people who in many traditional cultures are like healers and like holy people. Um, but in our culture are so persecuted, um, don't have like it's harder for them to come back because they have so many more enemies in a way, you know, and, and, Like as a white middle class person, I had a lot more support, even though I didn't feel like I did, but like, I didn't also have those challenges. And also, you know, I was going to say that, you know, there are some cultures where people who are schizophrenic hear voices that are kind and are like, Mm. make them laugh, make them feel good, speak nicely to them. We don't hear those voices so much in our culture because a lot of the time when you're particularly sensitive or you are an edge dweller, as we're calling them, 
you're hearing the cries of agony of a culture where, you know, that is formed on genocide, slavery, mm-hmm. um, you know, and is, and is it, that certainly hasn't ended. Like colonialism hasn't ended. And like, for instance, when you're going in to San Quentin, you're seeing like people who are kept in cages, like, and who have been completely abandoned and persecuted and punished by a state who never had a chance because like, like they're all coming from places where they were already born into like being outcasts in a way, mm-hmm. like not no protection, no resources, no help, no support. Yeah. And You're so right. like that, so people who, you know, are edge dwelling then or going into the underworld then like have a much more treacherous time in mm-hmm. there. And, and certainly might not find their way out. But I also want to say that when you are in proximity to people who are experiencing that, you know, it is dangerous because it is very, very hard to be in that place where there is a lot of pain and suffering and where there is a lot of hurt. And sure, there's a lot of beauty and meaning in it too, but it is like a, an intense place to be. And it's a, it's a place that a lot of people space that a lot of people can't occupy and don't want to. And I don't, mm-hmm. I don't blame them. Don't blame them. <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. You know, I don't blame them. <laughs> yeah. There's the feeling again, to go back to where we can both understand why someone wouldn't want to even thinking about people saying no, not as let's say, let's go back to your Oracle of Los Angeles. The first time, having people say no and knowing what I imagine you could sense from some people where it's like, Oh, you know, the truth is here and you can't do it. You know, like you can't be with it or I don't know. Does that. Yeah. I mean, um, the thing is our culture, colonial culture teaches us to be very certain of our worldview. And in colonial culture, Mm -hmm. there is only one, there is only one reality. There is only one truth. There is only one possibility. And like when we say consensus reality, we're really saying like white male landowning, like patriarchal mm-hmm. heterosexual people's yep. reality is the one. And and all of us are indoctrinated in that, whether or not we happen to fit those slots. And it also is har- it's harmful for everyone, including those people. But yeah. so whenever you come up against something that challenges that worldview, you're often going to react with derision and like um, mocking quality because it's too threatening. And one way of dealing with threats is to make fun of them. That's like very typical. On Mm -hmm. the other hand, Mm -hmm. it's not that there's not you know, charlatanism in the healer world. And it's not that there is no such, you know, it's not that every idea has equal merit or whatever. Um, so that, that makes it complicated. You know, they might, they don't know, they don't know what they don't know is the problem. A lot of the time, for instance, when people talk about astrology and they are very critical of it or say that there's no way that could possibly exist, but when they say that, they don't know what they're talking about because they don't know right. anything about it. So they yeah. don't know what they're saying doesn't <laughs> what they're exist. Saying no to. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. 
that makes sense. Um, and so I guess I'm, I'm wondering how, are, are there moments where the work you do can help someone like that see something that that's needed or is your do you have theories on well it takes someone already being open you know I, I don't think about anything you shared in your book or any way i know you on social media as being someone who's like i'm out to change all those people's minds but is there some <laughs> version of what you do as offering that like somehow suddenly cracking open the light uh for somebody who's got their identity bound and all that stuff and can't see it or is maybe not willing to? Um, well, so first of all, I think we all show up with what we have. And I, because of my position, you know, because I have, you know, a good education, quote unquote, good education. And because I am able to articulate ideas in a way that is legible to people who maybe come from more rationalist backgrounds Mm -hmm. that that is, that is one way where I serve as a bridge because I'm, because I'm able to articulate Mm -hmm. things that they maybe wouldn't understand if they were just kind of skimming across the surface. On the other Mm -hmm. hand, people, people receive like, yes, I, I have no interest in converting anybody or convincing (laughs) anybody or like, like making anybody see that like witchcraft is the way, like I really don't care if they don't want to, they don't have to, I'm not interested. Like there are plenty of people who are interested and I'm talking to them. But I also think that some, like when people are ready, they will hear, you know, and Mm -hmm. and that has to do with their own healing journey, just in the same way that like, you know, you can have a friend or even yourself who might go to your friend and be like, you know, I keep having the same thing happen to me in relationships and over and over and over again, I'm getting hurt in the same way. And why you are my good friend. Why do you think this is happening? And they'll be like, blah, blah, blah. And you'll be like, okay, whatever. And then like a year later, it'll happen again. And then you'll go to them and you'll say, why do you think this is happening? And they'll be like, well, because you always choose the wrong person. And you're like, why didn't you tell me this before? I can relate. And it's like, I have been telling you. I've been telling you for five years that this is the real thing. But you didn't hear me, you know? Or it was of seed planting. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. But you plant a seed and then like five years later, you're like, oh, that's mm-hmm. what they were telling me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, that makes sense. Uh, okay. I want to, I want to, I want to ask you a question that I sometimes ask guests and I'm, and I, I wonder if it'll be a little doorway and then lead us to some of the more explicit connections between your work and death and dying and endings and, um, First, so the question is, will you get an email called You're Going to Die? Uh, the podcast asks you to be on the show. <laughs> like what, it, not having known much of what we do in the world, what is it that would compel you to a conversation like this? And, you know, be you know, obviously you're going to be honest, but whatever it was, I want to hear. And um, I'm just curious. Uh, well, when I first got the email, I thought it was, you know, occasionally I get emails from like haters who are like, I, I'm going to crucify you or I'm going to chop your head off or burn you at the stake or whatever. So I thought, oh, here we go. Um, oh but then, 
<laughs> but then when I opened it and read it and and saw that it was about death and dying and like helping people process through grief, then I was like, of course I want to do that. I think, you know, that's something right. that is that I care about a lot. So and it's also nice to talk about things like that because I often kind of get I often get invited on podcasts specifically just to talk about witchcraft. Yeah. And it's nice to be able to branch out into some of the things I think witchcraft is mm. useful for rather than just focusing on like what it is. Well, one of your, one of your lines in the book that I love, and I kind of acknowledge this already a little earlier, but I'm thinking about the musicians I have on the show. And it's rare when I have musicians on the show that we talk anything about the music and what we get to talk about. And it totally connects to their music is what you felt compelled or at least thought you'd have a chance to touch on here, which is what does it mean to be a witch in the world and how does that relationship to death and dying and the work connect to death and dying and grief and loss and endings. And so perfect transition. Um, one of my questions is very directly connects to something you said in your book about your mom doing work with, uh, people at the end of life. And I'm wondering, there isn't much of that in, in your book because so much of it is the story of what it took to get to essentially the last 10 years of your life. Um, I'm wondering if you do a lot of end of life work or had the opportunity to be with people at the end of life. And if so, and it might be also communities who have lost someone. And I'm wondering what are those ways of showing up with what you do in those contexts? Yeah. So in my practice, I've had quite a few people who have like terminal illnesses or know that death is nigh. And I've also worked with quite a few people who um, have recently lost loved ones. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I haven't been called to the bedside, like in a hospital of, of someone who is dying. Do you, but, but if you're asking about like practices that one might do, um, well, I'm almost, well, I'm, I'm almost, I'm, I want to hear that, but I'm also inclined to hear what it is like to do what you do with people that are grieving and, and to do what you do for people that are terminal. And maybe it's not very different from what you do with any of the clients that come to you, um, in whatever capacity. Uh, but I am curious about that. Well, the people that I've worked with, who's, who the experience of grief is very fresh mm -hmm. and very acute. Um, of course, with that, part of it is just being willing to be there with them when they are so distraught. Yeah. When they're so devastated and, you know, the crowds of people at the funeral have gone and now they're facing the rest of their life without someone that they mm -hmm. really love and all they want is to see them again or know where they are, what's happening. And, you know, that, like that is really just about yeah. being able to sit in that yeah. and not try and come, not try and bring them out mm -hmm. because like, there's just no, you know, a lot of the time, I think when people are grieving, we want them to cheer up. 
<laughs> you yeah. know, like we we want to make it better. Are. Yeah, culture is doing that. Capitalism is yeah. doing that. Yeah, yeah, Life's doing that. yeah. But a lot of the time, when you're grieving, you you don't want to because mm-hmm. it feels like you're you're losing that person. It feels like a betrayal of that person. It feels like um, it feels so important to grieve deeply because it you feel like it's showing how much you love them, like to the degree to which you are willing to kind of follow them down the trail into the underworld. And, um, Mm -hmm. and that's an important part of what grieving is. Mm -hmm. And we just kind of slap like a mask over it and say, you know, you shouldn't feel it. You know, I think about like old practices of like wearing a, mourning for a year, you know, dressing in black for a year or something. Now we would be like, oh, that's so morbid. But in a way, it's very beautiful and helpful because people are mourning and grieving all the time in our culture, especially now after COVID. And we don't know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We just, you know, we don't treat them like we don't treat people like there's anything going on in their life. Yeah. Um, but so many people have experienced loss and, and you want to, you want to honor that Mm -hmm. because it's a very sacred place. Big thank you to Amanda for saying yes to being on the show and dropping in with me in this conversation. Lots of links and ways to connect to Amanda and support what Amanda's up to, to get involved with what Amanda's up to. Mostly all of these will easily be in the show notes for you to check out. But just to rattle off a couple things, you can check out Amanda's Substack at amandayatesgarcia.substack.com. Amanda's book, Initiated Memoir of a Witch, definitely get that book. Such a great story, well-written, but also weaves in history of, of the witch history uh, throughout her own personal story. I think of it as a, a really powerful way of, uh, especially, like I say, in conversation with Amanda, a way of maybe younger humans really leaning into these things that are possible by reading a book where someone else says, here's the story of how I figured it out. And, and somehow maybe more readily giving someone the option, this is a path, this is what's possible. Uh, you can also check out Amanda's podcast between the worlds and Amanda's Instagram at Oracle of LA and also Amanda does one-on-one sessions. So you can go through, her website, oracleoflosangeles.com to book one of those. And you can support Amanda on Venmo at Amanda hyphen Yates Garcia. Again, all the stuff I just mentioned will be in the show notes. Nick Jana. Hello. Hello. How are you? You know, I have, uh, I have a lot of witch friends. Mm. 
And um, you and I probably both are similar in that we grew up in in kind of the square world, the straight world for the most part, I imagine. Mm-hmm. And maybe for a while had, well, I'll speak for myself, uh, at times had interest in magical things, witchy things. And then maybe at other times had just a little like physical, like, shudder about it of this like, Mm. oh, that's not logical or that's not real or something, you know? And I just wanted to like say out loud something that I kind of pieced together for myself in the last couple of years of, uh, you know, when there's a concerted lineage of uh, genocide of like eliminating something like witches, I mean, literally like Mm -hmm. witch trials and and killing witches. um, It's not just a coincidence that people in power, people with privilege have a reaction like that of, Mm -hmm. I don't know about that. I'm not into that sort of thing, you know? And, um, it's actually a byproduct of that reign of terror, that like oppression of destroying those things is it's so easy to maintain generations later that it just ends up being like a, Oh, yuck. Oh, that's weird. Oh, I don't get that. I'm not into that stuff, you know? Um, and I've really through great, a tutelage from friends um, uh, allowed myself to open up to that and just, and just sit with it and just say like, this is somebody in the people that I know who consider themselves, witch, somebody who's dedicated themselves to helping people. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's helping people that are already dead, you know, or, or people like beyond uh, the physical realm. Um, and, but at its heart, it's the people that I know are people that are trying to be helpers that are helping, you know, like mm-hmm. healers. Um, I just wanted to to offer that as something that I only understood recently, um, that my biases potentially are not my own. They're like a product of a very effective system of trying to eliminate people, often women, non-binary, who are trying to help, you know, trying to help the disadvantaged people through non-physical means, through magic, um, the byproduct of that is me just saying, I don't know, that's weird, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, that's the the basic response that maybe is the, the, the shallow consciousness of how, let's just say, some white male privileged human being in this country would respond but then there's the unconscious for me which is an, another version of fearing death you know fearing loss feeling fe- fearing the change of what is especially something that's taken such good care of us you know to have grown up in a system that has given us the life we have and also simultaneously given so many others the lives they have that are not privileged that are fraught and um, I think about right away pops into my head is the context at San Quentin. You know, I think a lot about that community is community that was destined to end up in some of these contexts because the odds were stacked against them. Mm-hmm. And what I love about way I connect a conversation with Amanda and so grateful for the ways during our conversation, she really weaves not just oppression uh, of witches, but other uh, demographics too. Um, that have faced persecution, uh, not just in our country, but for many, many years in so many different ways around the globe. But this gratitude I feel 
at the learning of something that I can 100% say Amanda's, as far as I know, the longest I've ever talked to a witch, you know, and I'm not like proud of that and I'm kind of ashamed, but the reality is I'm so grateful for the way this podcast, especially now connecting to what you just said, gives me a chance to learn. And I feel that way in the spaces that we offer too. you know, the open mic, the grief spaces, especially, but going into San Quentin, it's this, well, how do I integrate this? How do I listen from a place of not possibly understanding, but learn something. And I would say to your point, nothing better for me to face loss and death and dying and maybe let go of what was than trusting a person or a being who wants to help others. Like I don't need any other, okay, green light. You know, I've seen like watch this documentary on Satanism and I see these people, uh, I can't think of the name of this documentary now, but they care. <laughs> and they're proclaiming themselves as Satanists. Now, I'm not saying more. I don't want to go, like, go religious <laughs> on this, but there's something for me that places them in a more powerful position in my perspective because I don't care of the label. What I know is they're trying to protect others. They're trying mm -hmm. to care for others. They're yeah. trying to support others. They're trying to stop people from hurting others. And I'm a yes. That doesn't mean I'm like, okay, cool. I'm a Satanist or that I even believe in them being that, but I can have a lot of room for that because I can trust their heart in some way. And I feel like Amanda offers that here. And, and I totally agree. Uh, this community of witches, like what can we learn and, and to, to really like nestle it into this death and dying and grief conversation. Something I said to you earlier, I want to, I want to know what's possible with death and dying that I couldn't have known because I'm a white male growing up in the United States and really getting like fed so much of a white, white privilege in this country in relationship to these things that are inevitabilities. Like I want a new creative way of understanding this stuff and moon, moving forward. Like I said, at the beginning of this intro, boy, I wish Amanda was at my side when my mom died, you yeah. know, yeah. I had a nurse who prayed you know, and that was really sweet, but there was a limit to, you know, my understanding deeply in that moment, like, why was it valuable? And, and, and I guess to be fair, this person was also caring, you know, so it, it gets complicated, <laughs> you know, this nurse, this Catholic nurse was thinking she was doing something heartfelt, you know, trying to take care of me and my mom, but, um, maybe not as powerful an offering as, what some other community might've offered me in that moment that I just didn't even know existed during that time. If you think about just the common image that pops into the mind of someone like me who grew up in the suburbs of a witch, it's mostly based off of Halloween costumes, you know, mm -hmm. which is when you think about it, it's such a grotesque exaggeration caricature of somebody's fear of what a witch is doing, you know, like cackling green, yeah. um, uh, mixing up a potion, trying to trick children, you know, Hollywood's depiction too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The wizard of Oz. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like that, that still like pops up in my head, uh, you know, unconsciously yeah. the first second I see that word. And that again, is just an effective reign of like discrediting from people in power of, um, we're afraid of the power of witches. And so we're going to paint them this way, you know, mm -hmm. and, and you can see it clearly when people do that with like racial groups and you can identify it as like, Oh, that's racist, you know, yeah. but I, I don't know 
it took me a long time to just identify that with, mm. with things like this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that, Nick. There's, there's something about some of these projects that we work on in the podcast as a version of it, where there's a through line. And I've said this before that connects so much. And it's really nice to have conversations at the end that sometimes we just laugh and, you know, fuck around with each other. But, <laughs> but also there's times when I feel like I get just a little extra crystal clarity about why these things matter. And, and especially in the arc of an episode like this to, to get this, this at the end here. Um, it's good for that. So thanks. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for your perspective. Ding dong. Um, is this a, a ding dong? <laughs> Who's there? Ding, ding dong. Who's there? <laughs> Trick or treat. Oh, uh, here's a, some, do candy. you like my costume? <laughs> Is this so <laughs> oh, I was jumping into role playing. Cause you said sometimes we laugh. So I thought we'd do a role playing. That's great. Taking That's place great. in Halloween. It's, it's hard for me to shift so immediately <laughs> from, from a meaningful, deeply meaningful, life-changing yeah. conversation to yeah. role-playing I, Halloween. I see that but now. But now yeah. I know how you welcome yourself into the episode. Here's some candy. Now get slam. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time. Bye-bye.